The late Donald Gray Barnhouse told the story of driving in a car with a friend and being asked, What's your favourite symphony? Barnhouse began whistling Brahms first. And then he thought, How ridiculous. How ridiculous of me to try to convey the impact and splendour of Brahms by whistling. And yet, from what he knew of that composer and his great works, he did bring to his own mind the magnificence of a complete orchestra in full flow with brass strings and percussion. Wonderfully, his friend, also knowing something of the work of Brahms, picked up the tune and immediately joined Barnhouse in this improvised performance. I remembered this story and it struck me how extraordinary it might seem, in human terms at least, to have the word of God read as it was delivered to us and then to think that I might say anything that will be of any help. And yet the Bible is very, very clear. The word is to be preached. So I won't be whistling tonight, but I've been praying that the Holy Spirit will translate this meagre melody into heavenly music that you can grasp and understand. In the light of that, we should pray. Our Father God, in your mercy, speak to us now for our strengthening, for our encouragement, for our comfort, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Dr. Young heard a heavy thumping that seemed to come from a downstairs bedroom on the east side of the house. He lit a candle and walked towards the landing and stairs. The shock of each thump vibrated through the floor. And the further he walked, the longer became the shadow cast by the candle. The candlelight should have shone in the stairs and banished her, but he saw neither, only a black, shimmering shape where the stairs should have been, and an orange glow on the opposite wall, like sunlight reflected on the sea. Water. The sea had risen in his house to the height of the first floor. The thumping was furniture, a chest and a bureau thumping against the ceiling below as the water rose and fell. Jung kept close to the wall, winching himself forward from doorknob to doorknob until he could see outside. It was as if he was aboard a ship in a storm. The only other house standing belonged to a family named Ewans, with a mother, father, son and daughter still inside. Moments later, Dr. Young saw his neighbour's house begin a slow pirouette. He said later that it turned partly round and then seemed to hang as if suspended. At about the same time, the wind changed direction and intensified, and Young felt himself compressed against the wall of the gallery. Mr. Ewan's house rose like a huge steamboat, was swept back and suddenly disappeared beneath the water, Young said. He thought of the family inside. My feelings were indescribable as I saw them go. It was September the 8th, 1900, and the deadliest hurricane in American history struck the town of Galveston, Texas, and about 8,000 people lost their lives. Havoc. A good dictionary will tell you that the word havoc describes a disastrous situation where chaos rules, where the void beckons and all known order and normality have disappeared. Such was the situation in Galveston, and such was the situation that the psalmist describes in Psalm 74. We know this because like any other major event in history, the details are recorded and captured in many forms and places, 
by historians, commentators, songwriters and poets. We can therefore accurately follow the story of the event and its consequences in many of the books of the Bible. Two Chronicles, Two Kings, Jeremiah, Haggai, Lamentations and not least here in Psalm 74. It's 586 BC and the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem and specifically the temple. That bare sentence doesn't accurately describe the significance of this event to God's people. The whole fabric of their community is destroyed. The foundation of their faith is in ruins. The skies aglow with the fire of the setting sun and the flames of the temple. But there's much more to this than the impact of a natural disaster. What we need to know is why the people of God in Jerusalem, for this is a communal lament, not a singular voice of protest, why the people of God were so outraged and so despairing. We can only start to answer this by looking at the place and significance of the temple to God's people at that time. The temple was the centre of Jewish religious, social and political life. Simply put, the temple spoke of God's presence. No temple meant no dwelling place for God. No temple meant no sacrifices, which meant no atonement for sin. It's difficult for us, two and a half thousand years later, to imagine a place that would carry such significance. Ever since the exodus from Egypt, God had made known his presence with his people, firstly through the tent of meeting, then the tabernacle, and latterly through the temple. And David's son Solomon built the temple, acknowledging that it could not contain God, but that it might be the place of which God said, My name shall be there, because God's name represents his presence. And God did promise to be present with his people in the temple to hear and respond to them. In this way, the location of the temple in Jerusalem resulted in that city becoming one of special significance. Worship was centred there. Pilgrimages were made there. Jerusalem and temple became inextricably linked. And yet the temple, this, this sign of the presence of God amongst his people, eventually became a barrier between them. In time and through their sinfulness, the people began to focus on the temple and not on God. They took for God for granted, thinking that whilst ever they had the temple, they were untouchable. Ironically, the temple that signified God's presence became an idol itself. And when the prophet Jeremiah warned them about this, they taunted him, chanting in his face, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And you know... We shouldn't rush to condemn these people without searching our own hearts. We could easily make the same mistake. Once we start to put our trust in our programmes, our structures and our strategies, rather than in the God we serve, then we too have corrupted good things and made them into idols to be worshipped. What the Israelites had forgotten was that God promised to be with his people only in the context of the covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. But when the covenant is broken, God is absent. Israel was guilty of persistent disobedience despite many calls to turn back to God. The covenant is just a formal agreement between two parties. In this case, a relationship between God and his chosen people. But what makes the idea of the covenant so powerful is that the people involved have no choice either in its establishment or in its terms. It's not about them, it's about God. God who is unchangeable 
and who will remain faithful even though they have broken the covenant and brought upon themselves the destruction of city and temple. However, despite all this, the book of Leviticus tells us that there are such things as the curses of the covenant, punishment for disobedience. Leviticus 26.14 says that if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And there follows the severe consequences of stiff-necked disobedience. This isn't God breaking the covenant, but it may well be a means of purifying those who are truly his and purging out those who are pretenders. So here we are, 586 BC. God had warned his people time and time again that they never learned. And now, well, this city, once full of people, is like a widow in tears, according to Lamentations chapter 1. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. The consequence of Israel's sin was the loss of God's presence and the loss of God's revelation. The Lord had caused the Babylonians to ravage the land and destroy the temple just to demonstrate this. There's no doubt who is in control. The prophet Amos said, when disaster comes to the city, has not the Lord caused it? Temple and covenant. Understanding something of these enables us to understand Psalm 74 and where it fits into God's big, big picture. So what form does this psalm, this prayer of lament, take? Dale Ralph Davis, the American preacher and writer, muses over an imagined situation where not only the sermons in church are recorded, but also the prayers of the congregation. It certainly would be quite enlightening about the people, about their cares and woes, their hopes and dreams, and not least about their God. So I guess that's what Psalm 74 looks like the recorded prayers of the congregation in Jerusalem. And verse 1 begins with a plaintive cry. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smoulder against the sheep of your pasture? Forever? Who said it would be forever? But isn't that just how rejection feels? It's never temporary, otherwise it's not rejection. Just a blip in a relationship. But you know, when our world falls down around us, isn't that just how it feels? So isn't this how God's people felt as they wandered around the smoking ruins? But the cry is still addressed to God. Amidst all this, there is no doubt as to the one who has caused this to happen. And there's no doubt as to the only one who can restore what has gone. Jeremiah 7 made this very clear. God said, What I did to Shiloh... I will do now to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in. And Lamentations, again, the Lord has done what he has planned. He has fulfilled his word which he decreed long ago. So how do the people of God react when they're brought face to face with their sin and with God's righteous anger? If there is but one God, and if that God is sovereign over all things, no explanation is possible other than that he is behind it and that there's nowhere else to run but into the arms of the one whose anger you've aroused. As one, pre one preacher said, there's only one way to flee from God and that is to flee to God. The cry is the more desperate as the prayer identifies God's people as the sheep of your pasture. But this isn't friendly fire 
an ironic term if ever there was one. There's no collateral damage. The sheep of God's pasture have become the target of God's anger rather than the object of his protection and guidance. God's then urged to do two things. Just look at verses 2 and 3. Remember how it was and look how it is now. It's a kind of reminder of the way we were with language redolent of the covenant relationship using words like purchase, inheritance and redemption. And this reversal theme, this sharp contrast between past glory and present misery is common to both Psalms and Lamentations. But look now, surely, when we tell God how bad things are, will he not act in mercy? Isn't it easy in prayer to lapse into telling God in great detail what he undoubtedly already knows? Thou hast no doubt, Lord, read in the daily mail of the persecution of thy people. But these prayers from the heart are not a pastiche of Teach Yourself Prayer, Volume 3, The Communal Lament. These are prayers from the heart. And just in case God has not got the message, a blow-by-blow account of the desecration of the temple follows in verses 4 to 8. The roaring of the enemy brings to mind a bestial sound and this is in the very place where you met with us. The invader's actions seem designed to destroy or remove every scrap of evidence that this was ever the house of God. Wielding axes, smashing panels, burning, defiling, crushing. The pain is felt the more as you know from 1 Kings chapter 6 of the skill and the love that went into the carving of the wooden panels the cherubim, the palm trees and the open flowers. This is pure, malicious, wanton destruction. And suddenly, the description ends. The noise abates. What's that? The sound of silence. Verse 9 says, We're given no miraculous signs, no prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. For the people of God, nothing is worse than silence from a God who speaks. A God who reveals himself in his word. A God whose word is living and active. A God who makes things happen with a word of power and demonstrates his character with a word of revelation. Surely this is the heart of the matter. There is no more miraculous sign from the word of God and their alienation from God is aggravated by the absence of a prophetic word. The word of God is replaced by the scoffing of the enemy. Could God be indifferent? But God is not indifferent. It's far worse than that. He had already spoken through the prophet Amos with these chilling words. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord. But they will not find it. It's not in God's mercy a situation that many of us will have experienced. We do have the faithful exposition of the word in many of our churches, says James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on Psalm 74. We have access to a multitude of resources, books and recorded talks. Our problem, he says, is not that we don't have the word, but that we do not 
value the word. We don't cherish it or study it or memorize it, but instead we allow other things to take its place. Newspapers, books, TV and the like. So, if our Bibles were to disappear overnight, would there be a void, a chasm, where they once were? What would that space look like in our lives? A few minutes a day? Short time on Sunday? Or just a gap on your bookshelf? But going on to verses 10 and 11, they complete the first half of Psalm 74 with echoes of the why of verse 1. Three questions put to God in staccato fashion. How long? Will it be forever? Why do you hold back? Could it be that there's an air of desperation in these pleas? Is the psalmist starting to wonder if God's credit rating is on the wane? Is his stock falling? I'm not sure it's a feeling peculiar to God's people of old. I'm sure at some time we've all thought, well, I've prayed and I've prayed, but nothing's happened. And now I'm thinking, what is God doing? We can say all the right things in the small group Bible study, but when it comes to the crunch, we even start to wonder if God has been caught unprepared. More than one commentator on these verses speaks of two great mysteries we face in our dealings with God, his reasons and his timetable. So it's inevitable that we find ourselves with psalms such as this pondering the sovereignty or the providence of God and wondering if he really is in control. The sovereignty of God is a doctrine that unsettles many, but one that a good friend of mine describes as the most comforting in the whole of Scripture. Because the alternative, a God who is not in control, is absolutely terrifying. So how does the knowledge that God has almighty and ever-present power to uphold and overrule all things, how does that help us? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Christian faith, says it helps us because we can be patient when things go against us. We can be thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing, nothing will separate us from his love. Remembering such truths is an antidote to the alternative, which is just a worry. Tim Chalice, the author, says that there's a, there's a kind of paralysis that, paralysis that can come when we're overwhelmed with worry. We can appear to be convinced that God is sovereign, but not at all convinced that he is good. We then get into such a dark place that we can't even bring ourselves to get up and get going. So we just stay at home and worry. So there are times when we feel like we need to worry because if we don't worry, God won't pay attention. We can feel that our worrying becomes effective as though it gains the ear of God. And Chalice continues speaking of his own experience. If I stopped worrying, God would stop providing. I just knew it. I had to worry, didn't I? If I didn't worry, who would? If I didn't worry, God would think I was complacent and he wouldn't provide. My job was to worry and his was to provide. But all that happened was that he missed the many, many lessons that God had been trying to teach him about his care and provision. The worrying didn't bring God closer. Actually, it pushed God away. It was untrusting. It was the very opposite of prayer. Well, the inhabitants of Jerusalem 586 BC didn't have the Heidelberg Catechism nor access to Tim Challey's blog. But they did have the history of God's salvation 
And in verses 12 to 17, they start to, to remind God, or perhaps to remind themselves, of his great works in creation and in redemption. Verses 5 to 8 were dominated by the enemy with verses full of they, they, they. They did this, they did that. But the boot's on the other foot in verses 12 to 17. You split open the sea, you broke the heads, you crushed the heads, you opened up the springs and streams, you established the sun and the moon, you set all the boundaries of the earth, you made summer and winter. So after God is reminded of what he can do, he is told no less what he should do. Verses 18 to 23 bring a whole string of suggestions as to what God might do next. You might sense an increase in desperation in tone here, but there's still no loss of conviction in God's sovereignty over these events. And verse 19 is unambiguous. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. You see, if God's people do get what they fully deserve, it won't be that the Babylonians have wrought them from the grip of God's grace, but that God has handed them over. And for God to hand them over is a fearsome thing. But again, it's exactly what Jeremiah had prophesied. After that, declares the Lord, I will hand over Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in his city who survived the plague, sword and famine to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. But you know, I think the culmination of the prayer here is in verse 20. Have regard for your covenant. The ground of their hope is the God of the covenant. I'm told that laments such as Psalm 74 often end with the psalmist or the people launching into a song of praise. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob, Psalm 75. We will praise you forever, Psalm 79. My tongue will speak of your praises all day long, Psalm 35. But Psalm 74 has no such uplifting ending. There's something quite different about this psalm. There's no confession of sin, there's no praising of God, and there's no obvious answer to prayer. It looks bleak. A commentator says that a lament without confession is just a complaint. And the prayer is left hanging in the air. But you might, like me, identify with that. But surely waiting and praying is a sign of faith, with or without the song of praise. Faith isn't a feeling but a conviction. So the writer to the Hebrews says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So it's neither fatalism nor pessimism nor stoicism to say that we won't always, even often, see happy endings to each chapter of life this side of Christ's return. But aren't we the people who always want to know how each chapter ends? Whereas God only promises to show us how the whole story will be resolved. So towards the very end of the psalm goes up the cry, Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Well, what is God's cause? Well, God's cause is no less than his eternal plan of redemption, the fulfilment of his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, that still begs the question, how would God defend his cause? 
How would he answer this prayer and move from the havoc of 586 BC to the fulfilment of his promise? It's a valid question because it's not obvious, looking at the destruction and devastation of Jerusalem, how all this will happen. From all we know of God, he has revealed himself in his word, as he has revealed himself in his word, there is no doubt that he will act to defend his cause because he has entered into an everlasting covenant with his people. So the answer is that God will do this in his own time. So 66 years after the destruction of the temple, the Jews are allowed to return and start to rebuild the temple. But the repaired temple is a disappointment. This is how the word of the Lord came to through the prophet Haggai to the returning exiles. Who of you, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? What's more, there's no sign of the glory cloud, God's presence, filling the temple as it had done previously. And yet the Lord spoke to Haggai and said, Be strong, all you people of the Lord, and work, for I am with you. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And then he added, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Well, what does that mean? How could a new temple be greater than the former, the one that drew people from all the nations to gaze upon it? Through this period of their history, God's people are never without hope. But according to the theologian Peter Leithart, the focus of their hope is progressively refined, chastened and sifted. So these people trusted in the wisdom of Solomon and he became an idolater. They trusted in the law-keeping of Josiah and he couldn't be sustained. They trusted in their worship at the temple. The temple was destroyed. No. What God's people needed was for wisdom, law and worship to be fulfilled to perfection. What God's people needed was for God's presence and for God's word to be ever-present. What God's people needed was for a once and for all perfect sacrifice that would put away sin forever, reaching back to the creation of the world and forward to the consummation of the ages. So, another 500 years later, a child is born in Bethlehem, a baby born in a stable. Not a very auspicious start. We might be justified in thinking... Does he not seem to you like nothing? But in John's Gospel, this child, God's own son, Jesus Christ, is portrayed as the new temple. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh amid his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is temple language. Glory, presence, grace and truth. The Lord's promise in Haggai is that my spirit remains among you. And this promise is fulfilled beyond our expectations. And there is no longer any need for a physical temple. For we have Jesus, the living temple. God's presence, God's word, perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. And the once and for all perfect sacrifice. The act that would atone for sin and reconcile people to God. The Apostle Paul, speaking of Jesus Christ, said that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So, about 35 years after his birth in that stable, Christ hangs lifeless upon a cross, ridiculed and rejected, bruised and blooded. And we might be justified in thinking, does he not seem to you like nothing? And yet it was there on the cross that the greatest victory in history was won. The victory over our greatest enemies, sin and death. For Christ not only died, but rose again. How does this connect then? A prophet in 500 BC, an incomplete temple, the fulfilment of the promise. You see, the Jews of Haggai's day were experiencing the consequences of sin, just like you and me. We can find ourselves in a situation where we look at our life and we're tempted to give up. We see a string of failures and wonder if the glory has departed for good. But God is faithful. God knew what they were thinking. The new temple will never be as good. Things will never be the same again. And God knows what we're thinking too. He knows we can be fearful, discouraged even, especially when we've stumbled and things will never be the same again. But just like the people who Haggai spoke to, our hope must be centred on the promise of God's presence and purpose for his people. But unlike them, our hope is not tied to a place the temple in Jerusalem, but to a person, Jesus, a better temple, the true temple. Our sins cannot undo the covenant made through the blood of Jesus, and we cannot thwart the transforming and redeeming work of the God who says, my spirit remains in you, do not fear. What a promise, what a relief, and all that's required of us to acknowledge our sins, to repent of them, to receive Jesus and to believe in him. John's Gospel in chapter 1 verse 12 says of Jesus that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We started in the precincts of the temple in Jerusalem, the centre of gravity for God's people, the place where God dwelt, the place where they met with God and enjoyed his presence the place where they offered sacrifices to atone for their sins, the place where the high priest interceded on their behalf before God. But all that was just a shadow of what was to come, for the reality is found in Christ. Everything is distilled, fulfilled, and brought to fruition in him, the one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, the one who is the very presence of God, the one who died upon the cross as the perfect once and for all sacrifice for our sins, the one who stands before God, interceding, mediating for us. So we can come, not to a temple of stone, but to Jesus, the living temple. And we can come to Jesus with all the havoc and hurt of our chaotic lives, with all the pain of our unanswered prayer, with all our unconfessed sins, and with all our fears and anxieties. And we can come to him at his own invitation as we hear these very words from his own lips. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's pray.